Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Insect in My Brain by Matt Demirsky. You ever had an itch you can't scratch? I once watched a documentary about people who had lost limbs but still had itches in places that no longer existed. From what I saw, it slowly drove them crazy because it was all in their head. I sympathize, but my problem's a bit worse than that. Try as I might, I can't scratch memories, and I certainly can't squash the bugs that have gotten in them. I first noticed the original instinct when I was talking about an old story with friends. We were out for a drink at a bar, and a strange spike-shelled bug about the size of a dime began crawling across the table between us. Wait, no, that's not how it happened. They're in my memories, you see. That bug is skittering throughout my memory of the bar now. It wasn't there the first time. I know, because I wrote it down. I trust my writing. No. The first bug I noticed was in a story I was recounting at the bar. I was talking about a concert I'd gone to about six years before, and I began describing a horrifying little bug that had crawled over my hand while I sat in the grass. It was unlike anything I'd ever seen, and I went on and on describing it. My friend had been there, but he didn't remember the incident. Another friend confirmed. That led me to the strange notion that I was remembering events incorrectly. But I could see the bug. As much as it made me shudder, I focused my inner awareness upon the memory and I watched it wander around the grass. Was I remembering it differently from moment to moment? It had a dark blue shell with tiny spines. The sight of it triggered innate disgust and revulsion, but I couldn't control the me in my memory and jump away. Whenever I did try to move away, the bug vanished from sight, because I was really just imagining the motion. Active change brought me out of the memory and into imagination. For that first week, most of my mental time was spent watching that bug. As I sat at work or in the car on the commute, I was only half present for my other half was at the concert six years ago watching a horrifying bug crawl upon oblivious friends and strangers. They were just memories clapping along to the music or drinking beers in clear plastic cups, but it still made me shudder to watch it crawl up their arms or around their faces. At one point, it fell into a sloshing beer and got trapped trying to move its repulsive little legs fruitlessly back and forth in the amber froth, and I thought my troubles were over. I called up that friend and asked if he remembered a weird bug falling into his beer at that concert. He said that he did, yeah, man, at least I think. When was that again? Six years ago? Yeah, I think I do remember that. He didn't seem convinced and I began reading up on how memories are formed. Apparently, memory is very untrustworthy, and people form false interpretations of events all the time based on prompts and a little unconscious imagination. Did he really remember the bug in his beer, or had I prompted him to envision something that had never happened? Of course, I had other things to worry about at the time, so I let it go for a bit. Instead of staring at the bug at the concert six years before, I spent my nights staring at the divorce papers on my kitchen table. In some ways, my empty apartment was like the palace of memory I'd been reading about. Every object and corner held some mental tag to a previous event, now soured and full of lies. The second time it happened, I was sitting at that table staring at a particular paper cup that had been left out for several months. 
Like the concert, it was another memory of her. We were at a coffee shop, doing nothing in particular, when a smaller bug began crawling up her cup. It was not the same bug from before, but it was dark blue, spined, and clearly the same species. She just kept smiling. Did she not see the horrifying thing moving down her fingers and along the back of her hand? This time, instead of being captivated by the insect, I tried not to think about that coffee shop. If I just didn't go near that memory, then everything would be alright. But no. I could feel a festering outside the edges of my awareness, and next time I looked, once I finally couldn't help it anymore, I also saw a number of small dots along the side of the coffee cup. I watched them day in and day out until they grew larger, and then I knew. They were eggs. I continued going to social events and nodding along to conversations as my friends talked around me, but I couldn't really hear them. All I could think about was the disgusting horror growing in my mind. What would happen when those eggs hatched? How had the smaller bug gotten to a different memory from the concert? At times, someone would ask me if I was alright, but I just smiled and claimed that I was. How would I tell them that my brain was becoming infested? Books, articles, online research. You know what's amazing? Lucid dreaming actually worked for a little while. Each night, I practiced keeping my awareness as I sank into dreams. There, the fusion of imagination and memory allowed me to act for the first time, and I rushed forward, slapped the bug off her hand, and stomped the coffee cup and its dime-sized black eggs. But when I woke up, I'd found that I'd just worsened the problem. I'd created a new memory of the coffee shop, the slapping and the stomping, but the original memory still existed. Try as I might, I could never alter the original memory, and... On the fifth successful lucid dreaming attempt, I missed a few of the eggs and found that I'd just created more. I was no longer staring at divorce papers on the kitchen table. Now, those were buried under piles of bills. I'd pay them eventually. I still went to work and sat through my day. I had money, I just really needed to deal with this infection of the mind first. After I paid the bills, I'd shower, too. And as I feared, they began wandering into other memories. A woman approached me at the bar before my friends arrived, but all I could think about was how any memories I created with her would just be infested sooner rather than later. What's a pretty face with bugs crawling on it? At home, in the car, at work, out with friends, I was near to screaming every moment of every day. Two bugs, six bugs, ten, fifty bugs, a hundred, a thousand, crawling along every moment of the last six years of my life. Worse, they were starting to crawl on me, and I could feel their horrible little legs as itching on my skin. Scratching my real arms didn't help. The itch was on remembered skin, for the bugs were on remembered limbs. Friends asked about my nervous itching and now visible tension, but I just kept smiling and saying that I was alright. There was no way to share this problem. They'd never believe me. They'd never understand. So I stopped going out with them. The itching began small, but grew too maddening over the course of time. Scratching did nothing, even if I scraped down to lower layers of my skin. I turned to online research again, and I read about reflection therapy. Those who had lost a limb and had itches there could assuage it by using a mirror to simulate the missing area while scratching at the real one. It was all in the mind, they said. Real mirrors wouldn't work for me, because the itch was not on a physical spot lost. What would work? At home, and itching in the dark among piles of discarded fast food bags, I began envisioning an imagined version of me. He was happy, successful, loved. 
Life was good for him. Brush the bugs off of me, I told him. And he came close and began slapping them away and stomping on their overturned and scrambling forms. And for a moment it worked. But then the bugs covered him too and nickel and dimed his flesh until he was just bones. He screamed while it happened, but only in that half-hearted, hollow-sensed that imagined sound holds. Traumatized, demoralized, I kept doing research, kept telling myself I would beat this, that bugs in my memory had to have a vulnerability. If I began with the assumption that they were real, then they were creatures of the mental plane somehow. What connected them to my physical self? What was consciousness? Scratching open sores constantly, stinking into high heaven, and constantly muttering to myself, I knew I was at my wit's end. I could see it. I could see myself. In the mirror, the bugs were crawling upon my skin openly. It was awareness. It was thought. It's all in the mind, they'd said. That's what this note is about. I've crafted a careful plan, done my research, and mapped out as much as I could, but I'm still not quite aware of the danger. I want you to know that I'm not insane and that it's not your fault. I also wanted on the record that my friends had nothing to do with this. I stole the knives and drills without their knowledge. I've sanitized everything and set up as sterile an operation room as I can. I'm not crazy. This is really happening, and it's the only way. I already know I'm right because I've made one drill hole and the bugs are beginning to spill out all over the floor and skitter away. I have to complete this surgery. Because it's all in my head. Send Jerry Out by Brandon Faircloth Up until last December, I'd worked for over 10 years in disability benefits compliance. My job was, essentially, periodically, checking in on people around our region who were receiving state disability benefits to make sure that they were being honest about their disability. They were complying with medical recommendations to mitigate or treat the disability, and that there were no other irregularities with regards to their care or the benefits they received. Usually, the in-house visits were fairly short. Most of the real information was coming from forms filled out by their treating doctors and a review of their current medical records, as you can't rely on self-reporting when it comes to these things. Still, occasionally, you would find someone who needed more help than they were getting or that you could prove was being dishonest just to get free money. It wasn't exactly a fun job, but I at least felt like I was performing a necessary, if boring, bureaucratic task. In the past few years, we've started having to assess cases where the disability claim doesn't fall into the traditional categories of physical or mental issues that we've had since I started the job over a decade ago. Rather, the qualifying mental disability category has been expanded to include moderate to severe mood disorders and severe phobias if verified by a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I'm not the final say on whether these people are truly disabled or not, but when I hear that the biggest problem they have is that they won't go outside, I admit to being skeptical. My last visit in October of 2018, Jerry Rhodes had that very problem. They call it agoraphobia, and I know there's more nuance to it than what I'm saying, but it boiled down to the fact that, except under very rare circumstances, such as a medical emergency, Mr. Rhodes had not left his home in five years. I was surprised when I first met him. I'm not sure what I was expecting, but it wasn't the friendly, outgoing man who greeted me at the front door and brought me into a clean and cozy living room. I commented on how nice everything was being kept, especially by a man living alone in his early 30s, and he just laughed and nodded. Told me that since he stayed here all the time, he tried his best to make sure it was a good place to stay. 
Over the next 30 minutes, I conducted our standard interview. Diagnosis, treatment, activities of daily living, therapeutic routines, outlier behaviors, difficulties and concerns, and finally, satisfaction with benefit services. He answered all the questions cheerfully enough, and while I appreciated his cooperation and even found myself liking him as we talked, I couldn't get past the fact that he seemed so... normal. He didn't seem afraid. He didn't seem anxious. He didn't seem like anything was wrong. In fact, the only thing that I noticed was that he kept looking at his watch. He'd wanted to meet earlier in the day, but I'd had to push it back to the last minute. Maybe I was keeping him from something. Still, I found my curiosity getting the better of me. I didn't think he was necessarily lying about having this phobia, but I did wonder if he was getting over it more than he had let on. Or if he really was as bad off as the reports had said, had he always been that way. It wasn't one of my standard questions, and I could tell he was getting antsy as it got later in the afternoon, but I pushed ahead into one last topic. Do you know where your phobia came from? Jerry had been glancing out the window, and when he looked back to me, I could see the first signs of true nervousness there. Giving an uneven laugh, he shrugged. (laughs) Where does any phobia come from? I guess I just have bad wiring. He gave a slight shrug before continuing. Do you have any other questions? Because it's getting late, and I'd hate to see you getting home in the dark. The man was watching me intently now, his tongue darting out quickly before disappearing again between his thin lips. I understand, and I appreciate it, but back to my earlier question. What I mean is, were you always afraid of situations outside your home? And if it developed later, can you point to something that caused it, or did it just come to you over time? He looked out the window again briefly before letting out a deflated sigh. Not meeting my eyes, he sunk back into his chair. No. Not always. Something happened, or I remember something happening, though the doctors say it's not true. That it's just my mind coping with the trauma of losing three of my childhood friends. I felt my eyes widen slightly in surprise. You lost three of your friends when you were younger, or more recently. Jerry didn't look at me now, his voice leaden. Oh, no, when I was young. Eleven. I lost all three of them the same night. Though others would disagree about that, too. I didn't understand what he was talking about, but I was interested. Besides, I only had access to his records for the last five years, but there had been no mention of delusions or schizophrenia. If this was a sign of some new issue, I needed to document it so we could get help. Jerry, do you mind telling me about it? He just stared at me for a moment before shaking his head. You won't believe me. And it would take too long. It's getting dark. You need to go. I debated internally. I wasn't trying to be rude or stress him out, but I didn't want to leave without at least trying to find out more about what was going on with him. Jerry, I'm just trying to get the best picture I can. I'm not here to judge, but if I don't get all the information I need, it could affect your benefits negatively. Seeing his deepening frown, I held up my hands. Not trying to pressure you, just encourage you. I want to understand what you're talking about, that's all. I won't judge you or what you tell me, okay? Seeing him looking at his watch again, I added, and this is my last question. If you tell me what happened to you and your friends, I'll go right after. Scout's honor. The man stared at me for several seconds before giving a defeated shrug. (sighs) Fine. If you want to hear it so much, I'll tell you. Then you'll think I'm crazier than you already do. When I was 11 years old, 
I went trick-or-treating the day before Halloween with my best friends, Matt, his brother Gary, and their cousin Jessica, who, funnily enough, lived to the next town over in Jessica's Resolve. We'd all gathered up at my house at 6 o'clock and turned loose on our own with the strict provision that we were to go no further south than Green Street or further west than Harleston Avenue. We were pretty good kids, and we looked down for each other. Our parents knew the most trouble we were apt to get into was eating too much candy on the way back home. And things went great at first. We had all put effort into our costumes that year, and it showed. Matt was a skeleton, Gary was a ninja, Jessica was a fairy with gossamer wings, and she could make them move a little when she wiggled her shoulders. I went as an executioner, complete with a black hood my mom handmade with me, and a big plastic headsman axe I'd gotten from the dollar store. The area we planned to cover was large, but it was also dense. There were three good-sized neighborhoods, plus a few side streets and dead-end roads that had more houses to try. At first, we were regularly running across other groups of kids doing the same things we were, but by eight, that number had dwindled. We were far from my house, and pushing the limits of being able to get back by our nine o'clock deadline, but our thought was that this area would be less picked over, too. Lots of kids didn't go out this far, despite the fact that there were some big houses tucked back on the smaller roads, and big houses, in our expert opinions, meant better candy. For a while, our plan seemed to work. No one else was out anymore, and the houses that answered the door were giving out the good stuff. Two more roads, and we'd be done with the best haul we'd ever managed. That's when we saw the other group of trick-or-treaters. At first, we just noticed another group of kids traveling in our wake. We'd leave a house, and if we looked back, we'd see them hitting the same place a few minutes later. And yeah, there were four of them, just like us, but we weren't missing out on anything because we always got candy first. But as we made our way to the end of one road and cut over toward the next, Jessica pointed out that they were gaining on us. It was said as kind of a joke, but we all heard the nervousness in her voice. We weren't babies, but walking around at night on Halloween was still kind of spooky. The fun kind of spooky where you made dumb jokes and you were glad your friends were with you, but... But when she said, they're gaining on us, guys, her voice was different. It had picked up a thread of less fun, nastier fear. And we all recognized it because we were feeling it ourselves. We picked up our own pace as we turned onto Everling Road. No one said it aloud, but as a group, we decided to try and avoid these other children if we could. When we went past the first house without stopping, no one, not even Gary, complained. We were ready to get home. They could have the rest of the candy. I was the one who looked back and saw the group behind us even closer now. They were passing by a well-lit and decorated house, and in that light and lesser distance I could see more detail than I had before. I looked where I was going for a second, and then turned back for another look. No. I had been right the first time. Shit. They're wearing the same costumes we are. A palpable tension began to grow between the four of us. No one said anything for a minute, but as we were reaching the other end of the road, Matt glanced back. He pulled up his skeleton mask when he turned around, and I could see he was scared. Fuck. They are. They look like us. They, they fucking look like us. We made the corner in unison, all walking so fast it was almost a jog, our plastic bags filled with candy, smacking our legs with a rhythm that matched the pounding of our hearts. Gary and Jessica glanced back again, and it was Jessica who finally asked the question we'd all been pondering for the last several minutes. What do we do? Gary shrugged, the casual gesture not matching the troubled look in his eyes. We just ignore them. 
It's probably just dumb luck or someone trying to scare us for Halloween. He paused and then added, But, uh, we should go on home anyway. Not give them any more fun. Matt was already shaking his head. I don't think so. Who do we know that knows what we were going as and would do this? Something's wrong with this. We need to get help. Jessica glanced back again and sucked in a breath at what she saw. They're getting really close. I. There's no help out here. We don't know these people and those kids haven't done anything yet. We just need to get back to Jerry's house right now. Fast. I looked over at her, trying to keep my voice low enough not to be heard by our pursuers. Are you saying we should make a run for it? She went to answer when Gary cut in, his voice high and panicked. He looked back again. Oh, God. God, Jess, it looks like you. We all turned around then, and he was right. While the other three had their faces covered with masks or hood, the fairy's face was largely visible beneath dramatic makeup. This close. It wasn't just someone copying Jessica's costume. It had her face, too. We all broke off running, and at first we stayed together, but then Matt fell, and Gary stopped to pick him up. Jessica and I would have stopped, too, but there was no time. The other group was running now, almost catching Matt and Gary before they got back going and cut down a side street. The doubles split as well, and now me and Jessica were being hunted by just the fairy and the executioner. I... I lost Jessica on the way home. I'd like to say it was a mistake or an accident. And I guess it was in the sense that I didn't want to leave her. But I was real fast as a kid. Fastest kid in our class. When I looked back one last time and saw them gaining, I yelled for Jessica to come on and I let go of her hand. I told myself she'd catch up, that I was just going to go ahead and get the door open. We were less than a hundred yards from my house by then. Everything would be okay. I just needed to get home. I made it there safely. And when I opened the door and looked back, no one was following me anymore. No executioner, no Jessica. No one. I ran into where my parents were watching a movie, hysterical, and I started telling them what had happened. It took a few minutes for them to get what I was saying and realize that I was serious, and that's when they called Mike and Gary's parents. Had they seen the other children? The tone of the conversation was first fear and worry, but that changed within just a few seconds. My father pulled the receiver away to give me a half-irritated, half-amused look. They're fine. They all just came in over there. I wanted to feel relief, but I didn't. The next day at school, none of them were there, and when they came back the following week, they were all different. I tried to tell myself I was being silly or that maybe they were pissed at me because I'd left them. Or they were scared about it and didn't want to talk to me and be reminded of it, but I didn't really believe any of that. Because they were all different. Not just because they ignored me now and barely responded when I tried to approach them, but... Look... This sounds dumb, but they didn't move right anymore. They didn't smell right. Everything about them was off, but when I tried to tell my mom that one time, she just gave me a patronizing hug and said that she was sure they'd come around and start being friends with me again soon. Two months later, they were all pulled from school. 
I hated to admit it, but it was almost a relief. I'd already made sure to avoid them outside of school, and not having to worry as much about them catching me between classes or on their way home made my life a bit easier, especially when I got my parents to start picking me up from school like they had when I was younger. I never heard why they left, and while I'm sure my parents talked about it, they did so discreetly. I think back then they still thought it was just all about their son having a falling out with his little friends. And then, three years later, Jessica murdered her little brother and committed suicide. It was big news in Jessica's resolve and empire for a while, but like everything, it faded with time. Four years later, when word got around that Matt and Gary had recently disappeared after years of mental issues, it was little more than trivia for most. When they were killed in a police raid six years ago in Indiana, they had four women in their basement. All of them had been raped, tortured, and murdered. I've kept track of them all this time, carried the guilt of what happened to me, and yes, it was traumatic, but to answer your original question, my agoraphobia just started five years ago. Because that's when they first came back for me. Jerry broke off talking as he looked out the window. He visibly paled as he stood up. You need to go now. It's dark. They'll be here soon. Walking closer to the window, he put his hand to his mouth as he looked back at me. He looked terrified. Jesus, they're already out there. It's too late. You have to just stay here until morning. I'm, I'm so sorry. It was my turn to feel afraid. There was no way I was staying overnight with this delusional man. Grabbing my purse, I headed for the front door. Sorry, Mr. Rhodes, but I have to be getting home. I saw he was moving to stop me, and I yanked the front door open and rushed through it before he got the chance. I half expected him to grab me from behind, but instead I felt a whoosh of air as the door slammed shut behind me. Through the door I heard Jerry, his voice high and trembling. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. It was then that I first realized I wasn't alone. Standing at the bottom of the porch steps were four small figures, all dressed up for Halloween, even though it was several days away. A skeleton, a ninja, a princess, and an executioner. I wanted to turn around and knock on the door, ask Jerry to let me back in, but no. This was some prank, or I, I didn't know what, but I needed to act rationally about it. Forcing a smile, I tried to keep my voice light as I stepped toward the front of the porch. Hey kids, out for some early... Send Jerry out. The words froze in my throat. That voice didn't sound like a child. I wasn't sure what it sounded like, other than it didn't sound like a little boy or a girl, and it made my stomach clench so hard I gasped. Swallowing, I made myself try again. Kids, I think Mr. Ro Send Jerry out. I felt my vision swim this time, and I had a panicked moment where I thought I might actually fall. If I fall, they'll be on me, and... No, I, I had to keep... That's when they began walking up the steps. I leapt off the porch and ran to my car, never looking back, never stopping until I was across town and home behind a locked door. I spent the rest of the night looking out my windows, but I never saw anything out of the ordinary. Two months later, I saw in the newspaper that Jerry Rhodes had disappeared. 
It worried me at the time, but I tried to chalk it up to his mental issues. Maybe he had finally run off somewhere else, and wherever it was, I hoped he got some peace. Whatever it was, I'm done with him and whatever he was caught up in. That was the important part. The next morning, I found a note posted on my front door in a red, childlike scrawl. It wasn't signed, but I knew who it was from, and I knew what it meant. I quit my job that week, and by the end of the month, I'd moved across the country. I've spent the last few months dreading the anniversary of the day I met Jerry Rhodes and the things that stalked him, and I should be safe here. No one from Empire even knows where I'm at. But last night, when I looked out on my lawn, I saw four small silhouettes outlined in the moonlight. They stood there all night, silent and waiting. I didn't know how it worked for Jerry, how often they came, why they couldn't get him sooner, and what mistake he finally made. But I do know that they're patient, and that they keep their word. Because I still have the note I found that morning, just a couple of days after Jerry finally lost his siege. Its message was simple, both a promise and a threat, just one single line, the color of faded blood. See you next October. With an estimated 140,000 people living without shelter, California has the highest homelessness rate in the entire country. In L.A. alone, there are approximately 50,000 of these unfortunate souls. When you see such staggering numbers, it's easy to lob them all up as statistics and forget that every single number is a person with a story. This is the story of one homeless man by the name of Terry. Terry was somewhere in his mid-sixties. He couldn't remember his exact age, where he came from, or how long he'd been homeless. The years were muddled together in his mind. Every day, Terry would sit on a cardboard box on the corner, being ignored by most passers-by, harassed by others, and sometimes, if he was lucky enough, given a small donation. He wasn't a drug addict, but he did waste a good portion of his earnings on cheap booze. It wasn't much for him to do, you see, and... Alcohol offered an escape from the misery and discomfort plaguing his day-to-day life. Terry's favorite, and only, pastime was reading books abandoned around town. Wherever you found Terry, you were sure to find a backpack full of novels nearby. He read everything from police stories to trashy Harlequin books. It didn't matter to him, as long as it helped pass the time. At night, Terry would walk around town trying to find a park bench to sleep on. From time to time, when things got tough, he'd try coming into a homeless shelter to recharge his metaphorical batteries. It was by no means luxurious, but being able to sleep on a springy mattress, if only for one night, made a huge difference. That's where we met. Terry came into the Los Angeles mission about once a week for a meal where I volunteered for a few weeks while I got my nursing degree. He was always patient, courteous, and thankful for everything we would give him. He never complained about his situation to me or to any other volunteer. He'd always give us a smile and a blessing when we served him before heading to a table and digging in. He was one of the few who actually picked up after himself and brought his tray back once he finished. Once in a while, he'd offer to help with the dishes, and we'd chat about nothing and everything. All in all, Terry was a kind soul. I'd been working at the mission for about two years. One night, as I was closing the kitchen, I spotted Terry sitting in the corner with a book in his lap, pawing ferociously at the back of his messy hair. Through years of neglect, it had become a mop of tangled locks pointing in every direction with twigs and sometimes bugs trapped between the strands. His hair dangled from his head all the way down to his shoulders, but it was nothing compared to his beard, which was longer and messier. Dirt and dried food clutched to the coarse, curly mask of facial hair. 
Curious, I walked over to him. As I approached, I could hear him mumbling beneath his breath, something about needles and things crawling, but it was hard to decipher. I could smell alcohol on his breath, so I figured he was talking about the book he was reading. As he continued to scratch at his head, I knelt down and asked what was wrong. Oh, nothing, it's fine. My head just itches something silly, he said. That was the first time I'd ever heard him complain. Come on back, we'll, we'll check it out, I offered. He shook his head. No, 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 I don't want to be a bother. As he lowered his hands, I noticed his fingernails were caked with blood. Looks like you hurt yourself, Terry. Come on, don't, don't make me beg, I replied. Terry sighed heavily and pushed himself up. I could hear his old bones cracking as he straightened himself. We walked to a small bathroom in the back. It was intended for employees only, but we made exceptions from time to time. Terry sat on a stool and I started to pull his hair back to take a look. But when I did, a large clump came out. Cringing, I tossed the twisted, dry, straw-like hair in a bin and dug in again, fully expecting to find ticks or head lice dancing on his scalp. To my surprise, I found neither. What I found was a lumpy, porous, ping-pong ball-sized nodule protruding from the back of his head. Near the center of the lump were two tiny dots that oozed pus when applied pressure. It seemed to make Terry very uncomfortable, so I didn't play with it too much. The skin on and around the nodule was irritated and bloodied from Terry's scratching. <sighs> Looks like an infected bug bite. I'll give you some Neosporin, alright? We'll see if that clears this up, I said. Terry nodded quietly. No more scratching it, okay? I asked as I applied the cool gel against the skin. No scratching, promised Terry. Good, I answered. I would have applied a band-aid over the area, but I was doubtful it'd stay on. There was too much dirt, grime, and hair in the way. As my hands pulled back, a few tufts of hair remained stuck to them. Thanks, ma'am. God bless, said Terry as he rose to his feet and slowly made his way out of the bathroom. We didn't see each other for a few days. Next time Terry came around, he was looking a little worse for wear. Large bags had formed under his eyes, and he didn't have quite as much pep in his step as he normally did. He didn't smile when I served him his meal, nor did he thank me as he walked off with his plate of food. Terry sat down, opened a worn paper bag, and stared at it. His eyes didn't track him down the page. Instead, they were locked on a single spot as though he wasn't reading at all. Change in behavior had me a little concerned, so as soon as I had a break, I joined him at the table. He'd been sitting there for half an hour and hadn't taken a single bite out of the lasagna he usually wolfed down feverishly. Everything all right? I asked. He groaned and rubbed the back of his head, and I could see several bald spots in his unkempt mane. Even his beard looked a little patchier than normal. My head hurts. A lot, he murmured. I remembered the bug bite. Maybe it had gotten worse. Let's get you checked out, buddy, I offered. He didn't fight me this time. Merely stood up and moved toward the bathroom. Again, I sat him on a stool and knelt down behind him. Touching his hair was horrible, not because it hadn't been properly cleaned or combed in ages, but because it seemed like every strand I touched came falling off. This couldn't be normal. After one larger clump cascaded to the ground, I spotted a long black creature wriggling about on the floor. I yelled and immediately brought my heel down on, squashing it with a violent gush. Terry was startled by my outburst. Sorry, bud, you had a worm caught in your hair. It scared the hell out of me. Just a symptom of sleeping on the streets, I figured. When I finally exposed the nodule, I noticed it had grown by about half an inch. The skin on and around it was very irritated and flaked off at the slightest contact. As I examined the swollen node, I noticed four odd strands of hair coming out of it. Had they been there before? 
Though Terry's hair had gone gray a long time ago, these were pitch black. They seemed a lot thicker than normal hair, too. Must have been my imagination, but I swear that when I reached over it and touched one, it recoiled. Terry, it looks like it's gotten worse. We should take you to the ER just in case, I said. Terry shook his head quickly. No, no, no. I frowned. They'll take good care of you. No more doctors, no more needles, he replied, jumping to his feet. I sat him back down with a sigh. <sighs> okay. No doctors, alright, buddy? I agreed. There wasn't much I could do to help poor Terry aside from applying him with more antiseptic cream. This time, I wrapped his head with gauze to make sure it wouldn't rub off. Come back tomorrow, okay? I want to keep an eye on this, I told him calmly. He didn't respond, just got up and went back to his meal, leaving me to clean up the mess in the bathroom. His hair was all over the place, and it took me at least ten minutes to sweep it clean. I didn't want the other volunteers to get grossed out. The next day, I waited for Terry to return. Every time the door opened, I looked up hoping I'd see him, but each time a different face emerged. By the time my shift was over, I was worried. It was raining hard that night, and I figured Terry had sought refuge in a bus shelter near his favorite panhandling spot. Borrowing a few supplies from the first aid kit, I took off in my car looking for him. I saw so many Terrys that night. Some young, some old... Some drunk, some high, some wet, some cold, but all of them without somewhere to stay. Just when I was about to give up, I found my Terry, huddled up in the corner under a blanket of newspaper. I ran out of my car as fast as my feet could take me, fearing for a moment that he was dead. Thankfully, he emitted a groan when I shook him and sat up to look at me. Terry, buddy, you were supposed to stop by tonight, I told him. He rubbed his eyes and looked at me with a vacant expression on his face. It was as though he didn't recognize me. I carefully pulled him to his feet and helped him to my car, sitting him in the back seat where I would have a bit more lighting. Terry looked positively awful, his face sunken in like someone who'd gone through a year's worth chemo treatments. Couldn't even fathom how he'd wound up in such a state. I'm going to take off that bandit and check the bug bite, Okay. I said. No reply. I forced a smile and began to slowly unwrap the gauze. His hair. Good God, his hair. It was so brittle and peeled away like leaves in the autumn wind. Then off came the last layer of gauze and I felt my stomach sink to my knees. Those black hairs I'd seen the night before had grown thicker. They stuck out of his skin and wriggled about as though they had a mind of their own. It wasn't fair to call them hairs anymore. No, they were something completely different. Tendrils. Moving, twitching, slithering tendrils that shot toward my hand the second they were exposed. Screaming, I pulled back and fell on my ass as the tendrils began to slide up and down Terry's scalp, tugging out every last clump of hair they could grab. I sat on the wet pavement in shock, watching the deforestation of Terry's scalp in utter disbelief. The discarded patches of hair began to slide toward me like caterpillars. I could just barely make out a few of those black tendrils at the center of the mass as though they were wearing Terry's mane as a fur coat. My feet instinctively kicked them back whenever they got near, but there were so many of them that some managed to crawl on my legs. Terry began to groan and shake violently, lifting his arms to his head. He scratched at the lump, peeling away the skin until suddenly I heard a tearing sound. The skin over the module peeled away like the rind of an orange, and inside the wound I saw something staring back at me coated in a viscous fluid that seemed like a mix of gel and blood, was an eye. That's when I lost it. I bounced to my feet and ran, screaming for help, begging anyone I came across to call 911 as I peeled the wriggling hair-coated worms off me. I didn't know what to do or how to explain what I'd seen. 
Terry was gone by the time I calmed down enough to think straight and call for an ambulance. The only thing left in my back seat were a few brittle strands of hair and blood, a bag full of books and empty beer bottles. Terry's body was found by the river the next day, his head hollowed out and a large fracture at the back of his skull. Approximately 49,999 homeless people live in Los Angeles. It's a staggering number, isn't it? It's easy to think of them as just a statistic. But don't forget that every single one of those people have a story. And this was Terry. everyone. I hope you enjoyed tonight's stories. I liked them a lot, especially the Halloween one. I know it's like October 4th or 3rd when this goes up, but I'm so, so ready for Halloween and just October and honestly just all of the holidays in general that come around this time of year. It's been a long year for me. I'm not really sure why, but it has been, and I'm kind of happy to see it come to an end. Um, my birthday's coming up, which is very exciting. Let's do, it'll be on the 14th. Uh, maybe I'll do something special here. Maybe not. I haven't really decided yet. Um, while I think about that, I want to give a quick thank you to everyone on screen right now. That's our $5 patrons and members. Um, if you want your name on the screen at the end of a video... Just become a patron or a member for five bucks on Patreon or over here on YouTube. You can also become a patron or member for a dollar and get videos a day early. If that sounds like something you want to do, all those links are down in the description below. And finally, I have one very simple question for you tonight. What's the scariest thing that happened to you on Halloween? I do have my own story, but... I think I'll type it out in the top comment because it's kind of long and I don't want to keep you here forever. So keep an eye out for that and let me know what happened to you on Halloween. Something that stuck with you all these years later. Anyway, I hope you all have a wonderful day, afternoon, or evening, wherever you are. And as always, take care of yourselves and everyone around you. Good night, everyone. <laughs>